Hello and welcome to River Talk, where we sit down with some of the more interesting and notable people in the Rivertowns area. My guest today is the representative of New York's 17th Congressional District, which encompasses all of Rockland County and parts of Westchester, including the Rivertowns from Irvington to Peekskill. Congressman Mondaire Jones. Congressman, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Christian, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. So first off, tell me a little bit about your connection with the district. You know, I was born and raised in New York's 17th Congressional District and have spent the vast majority of what is, by congressional standards, still a very young life in this district. I was born at Nyack Hospital, grew up in the village of Spring Valley, and now reside in the city of White Plains. And so, you know, over the course of decades, have not only grown up in this district, but also have worked on behalf of it uh, more recently as a lawyer for Westchester County, uh, litigating some of the county's biggest cases and serving as a legal advisor to the Westchester County Executive and the Board of Legislators and uh, the Westchester County Human Rights Commission. You grew up around here. Uh, You went off to study at, at Stanford and then Harvard, where you got your law degree. What was that experience like? You know, most people... I think have mixed feelings about their law school experience. Uh, Mine was overall a a positive one. I so enjoyed the community and and obviously got a a great legal education. Prior to serving in Congress, the best four years of my life were as a college student at Stanford University. At an unexpected invitation, I visited and fell in love with the campus and then decided to apply. And that was a big deal for my family who wanted me to stay on the East Coast. Uh, And at the time, uh, even then and, and around, you know, I graduated high school in 2005, but at the time I was applying in 2004, you know, there were a lot of folks who had never heard of Stanford who, who were based in New York or, or in the metropolitan area generally. And now I think that that has changed a great deal even over the past 16 or 17 years. Uh, but it was an experience unlike anything I had had, to say the least, right? I mean, you, you're meeting people from all over the world with such diversity of perspective and lived experience and passions. And the professors that I had there continue to be people who were close to me and, and who were mentors in addition to educators. So tell me a little bit about your uh, post-college legal career. So I'll note that before law school and after college, I worked in the Department of Justice during the Obama presidency in the Office of Legal Policy. I was a staffer there, and I vetted candidates for federal judgeships. Uh, These were uh, candidates who believed in the rule of law (laughs) and the fundamental right to vote in this country and in the civil rights of all people. And I'm really proud of the work that that president did and that I was able to help with, obviously, with Eric Holder at the helm of the Justice Department. I also worked on policy. I worked on reducing the rate of recidivism, so basically the recommission of crimes of people leaving federally incarcerated settings and returning to society, and also worked on that process of smoothly or more smoothly reintegrating people into our society. We, we do a terrible job still, I think, as a society of making sure that people who leave incarcerated settings don't end up back in those incarcerated settings, right? We make it difficult for them to get student loans or Pell Grants, for that matter. We make it difficult for them to get 
federally subsidized housing, which is something that impacts our district where it is extremely expensive to live. We make it difficult for them to get basic things like licenses and other forms of ID, or at least we don't make it easy for them to get it. And for someone who's been incarcerated for many years, we need to start making certain documentation and other things easy for them if we want them to become contributing members of society. So you would say that your work with the uh, Obama Department of Justice was probably a pretty formative time for you. Did it influence your decision to get into politics? It it did. You know, I had been politically active in college at Stanford, but, you know, from an ideological perspective, I saw a president of the United States, a Democratic president of the United States, with significant majorities in both chambers of Congress still be obstructed by people who were not interested in legislating in the best interest of the American people, but who were singularly committed to preventing a Democratic president from from making any kind of progress, and, and were saying as much. And that really diminished whatever patience I had for compromise where none is necessary, and we know what the American people need, right? So I I use, for example, this infrastructure bill. The president, as of today, is reported to be considering a number of concessions that would whittle down significantly the the size and the scale of the infrastructure package, also known as Build Back Better, which consists of both the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. And he is doing it with, to be fair to him, great insistence by people like Senator Manchin of West Virginia for the purpose of getting a few Republican votes. But the American people, just like they knew the American Rescue Plan was the right way to go, despite the fact that not a single Republican voted for it, also know that we need to meet the scale of the various crises that we face, not just roads and bridges, but the climate crisis that is existential uh, and surely the, the crisis of human infrastructure. So now I'm talking about child care. And if we have unified control of the federal government and can pass this bill through reconciliation, we should not be watering it down so that people who are not acting in good faith are able to say that they have their name on the bill. So in 2020, you ran for Congress in an eight-way primary, which is uh, a pretty big deal. What was that experience like? It was a dream, but it was also really hard. And I'm so grateful to have had what I believe still to be the best team in American politics working on that campaign, especially in the primary phase. Obviously, when Congresswoman Lowy announced her retirement, anyone who had ever aspired to run for Congress seemingly moved back to our district and threw their hat in the ring. And up until the final days of that race, you may recall that the political establishment, for the most part, did not believe that someone like me could win the Democratic nomination in a district like this. But the whole time, I believed that we could. And I was grateful to be in community with people who shared my values and my optimism about the electorate and, frankly, the community that raised me. And and so I was proud to make American history. It certainly put everything on the line. I mean, I quit my job to run for Congress, which is something I acknowledge most people cannot do, which is why we we absolutely need campaign finance reform. You know, it shouldn't be that you have to have savings in order to uh, quit your job to run for Congress or that you have gone to Harvard Law School, for example, and have a network of people who would be willing to support you or have been a former corporate lawyer in the way that I was as well. And of course, I got to meet people who I'd never met before. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people, in fact, who shared their hopes 
and dreams and fears with me. And I carry those experiences with me every day in the United States Congress. It helps me legislate better and advocate better to have run the grassroots campaign that I ran. And I don't think any other campaign ran the kind of grassroots campaign that I ran. <laughs> well, you, you see a lot on the national and the local level of Democrats primarying and, and taking on more established candidates. Is, is that something you find encouraging? I think it depends, right? I mean, I don't think that people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders need primary challenges. But I do think that where your district is yearning for bold solutions to intractable problems, it is increasingly untenable for people not to get behind things like a Medicare for all system, especially in the midst of a global pandemic, which has really exposed the grave inadequacies of our largely employer-based healthcare system, you know, I, I think it is increasingly untenable for people, especially given the progressivism of this younger generation, to not be talking about issues of systemic racism and, and, and racial justice and, and reforming and reimagining policing in the United States of America. Also, simultaneous with developments in technology that have really exposed a lot of what these interactions look like in the day-to-day -day lives of, of black and brown Americans. One of your more high-profile actions was filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump and Postmaster Louis DeJoy. Could you tell us a little more about that? As a candidate in the general election, I watched as our democracy came under assault, which I know sounds familiar today, by a, a president of the United States who was lawless, and not committed to a free and fair election, and basically one of his lackeys, you know, Louis DeJoy, who's the, still today the Postmaster General of the United States Postal Service, which sounds crazy to say, but it's true. And he had proposed a number of so-called operational changes to make it extremely difficult to vote by mail uh, effectively and efficiently, to strain the resources of the workforce as it existed within the Postal Service, and... I also knew that everything was on the line. We couldn't endure another four years of the now disgraced, defeated president of the United States, Donald Trump. And for that reason, I, I wanted to do something prior to even being elected to be helpful. Because, of course, what happened at the presidential level would also have ripple effects down at the congressional level as well. I mean, people were voting on the same ballot for various offices. So there was just a lot at stake, uh, including majorities in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. And as a private citizen, I decided to sue as a plaintiff. And we got a nationwide injunction requiring him to stop those changes from going into effect. And what are some of the accomplishments that you are most proud of in your congressional career so far? You know, even before being sworn in, my colleagues elected me freshman representative to leadership unanimously. And that is a very humbling experience for then a 33-year-old who had never held elected office to receive, I, on a weekly basis, at least, am in conversation with the speaker and with other members of the Democratic House leadership team about the path forward for our country and for you know, the Democratic Caucus in the House of Representatives. I'm really proud of everything that we have passed so far. I mean, I think most people understand that the Senate is the problem today and not the House of Representatives. We passed the Equality Act, which would finally enshrine protections in our federal anti-discrimination law for the LGBTQ plus community. 
Uh, so happy Pride Month. We passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, which is not and will not be a panacea for systemic racism and police violence, but it, if passed by the Senate, would represent a major stride forward by ending qualified immunity for police officers who violate the constitutional rights of civilians and create a national registry for police misconduct, as well as ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants like the kind that killed Breonna Taylor. We, we passed the For the People Act, also known as H.R. 1 in the House and S. 1 in the Senate. Uh, and that must be passed in the Senate above anything else at this juncture because it is of foundational importance to our democracy that we secure the right to vote given the voter suppression that has already been enacted and signed into law in Georgia and Florida and what's being attempted in Texas and really what's being proposed in 43 different states across the country. Uh, we know that Republicans cannot compete on the merits of their very unpopular policy ideas, so they instead seek to disenfranchise large numbers of the American electorate. And if we do not pass this legislation called the For the People Act, I don't believe that we will have much of a democracy moving forward into the next decade, especially going into a redistricting year uh, where my colleagues on the other side of the political aisle will continue to draw districts that elect QAnon conspiracy theorists like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Joe Biden is now president. It's probably a, a very different time for a, a congressional Democrat than it has been for the past four years. What do things look like going forward? We are in the fight of our lives as it concerns American democracy, uh, which is in crisis. The insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th told us so. Uh, so, too, did the decision of Senate Republicans to block a bipartisan commission to investigate the events of January 6th. You know, I nearly died in the in the Capitol that day of the insurrection. And just hours later, two thirds of my Republican colleagues voted not to certify the free and fair presidential election of Joe Biden. So a lot is at stake, including future majorities in the, in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. It is clear that my friends on the other side of the political aisle are gearing up to not certify a presidential election in 2000, uh, from, from 2024, if if it is a Democrat uh, who gets elected president, and that is a chilling thought. It is nightmarish, and it is not representative democracy. It is autocracy, and we ought to be doing everything we can in the next couple of months, which is really all the time we have left before these districts start to get drawn and, and key provisions of, of the For the People Act will need to be implemented to make sure that we pass this legislation. That must mean at least making an exception to the filibuster to save our democracy. All right. Well, I know you're a very busy man, so I'll let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Congressman. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's such a pleasure, and I look forward to being back in the future. If you'd like to learn more about Congressman Jones and the work he's been up to, you can check out his website at jones.house.gov, or you can follow him on Twitter at Mondaire Jones. River Talk is a production of River Towns Media, publisher of River Journal and River Journal North. For more information, check out riverjournalonline.com slash rivertalk. Do you know someone from the area who would make a great guest on the show? Let us know at rivertalk at rivertownsmedia.com. River Talk is executive produced by Alan Begun and Bruce Apar of Rivertowns Media. I'm Christian Larson, and I'll see you next time.